Hello, everybody. It's me, Erica. <laughs> and Rachel. And you're listening to Starcry Podcast. Woo! Welcome back, everyone. We realize that this episode is late, and we have good reasons. One of them is that I had a very busy work work week leading up to merch break, and I just didn't have time to get the full script down the way I wanted, and it was just crazy. But now I'm off, and I have it done, so I'm excited to record. But the other reason why is because me and Rachel have been reunited, and it feels so good. I think yes. you sing that every single time that we are together. <laughs> um, finally, since I think December, I haven't been here to your wow. place. That's been- wild considering for the last three years, it's been every other week. <laughs> I know. So we're really excited to be together and we're going to give you part two of the series we started. Part two. I'm excited. But before we get there, you might notice that Rachel is feeling a bit under the weather today. Oh yeah, can you tell? My <laughs> voice is a little scratchy. It's not that I'm sick, I just think I was yelling too much um, last weekend because, oh my god, it was the best. A full day of drag, Erica. I was in my glory. <laughs> From morning till dinner. Literally drag brunch and then a show at night. But like the show at night, well actually no, all of them were RuPaul Queens. Our drag brunch was Miss Mosu, who was a Canadian on uh, Canada's Drag Race. And then did War on the Catwalk with, oh my gosh, Trinity the Tuck was the best host. And Brooklyn Heights, which is a Canadian queen. Hello, Queen of the North. So good. So I still my- just want to see Katya and Trixie. Um, I thought I saw a tour that they were doing, but I could be wrong. It might just be American uh, cities only. Well. But if there is, if I come up, if it comes across my emails, I'll... Well, I want to go to the Trixie Motel in Palm Springs. That would be the best time ever. That would be would really be so fun. Into it. Yeah. So, anyways, so that's why our episode is late because I wanted to wait because I was already busy and I knew that this was gonna that I didn't have time to get the whole script done. I figured, why not instead of record Friday night remotely, we just record together yes. in the same room for once in our freaking lives. <laughs> you know why not? Why not? Uh, and it's nice to be in your physical presence. I know we see each other at least once a week online, but it's different when we're that. together. It is so. different. I love having you in my physical presence as well. <laughs> it is It is different. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, if you can remember all the way back to, I think, March 1st, we released our first part of a at least three-part episode on... I guess these guys, they don't really have, like, a serial killer name. They're just two douche canoes named <laughs> Leonard Lake. I think you just named them. <laughs> the douche canoes named Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. Uh We filled you in kind of on their early lives last episode. We talked a lot about their, you know, where they grew up, what they were doing, how they met, all of that kind of stuff. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that because it might be a little bit confusing just jumping right into part two. But I'm not your mom and I'm not here to tell you what to do. You guys do what you want to do. All right. 
I want to preface this episode by saying that there are many victims involved in this case, and while we know that Leonard Lake and Charlie Ng were most certainly responsible for the disappearances of many of the people we are going to talk about today, there are probably several several others that they killed that we simply don't know about. Uh Like we said last week, Leonard Lake had committed suicide in June of 1985, shortly after being arrested um, after Charlie Ng had uh, shoplifted from the Lumberyard store. Mm Mm-hmm. Investigators who searched the Wilseyville property where he had been living, uh, which we'll talk more in detail about next week, exactly what they found there, but they most importantly found the remains of upwards of probably 25 victims. Wow. Most of the victims, they their bodies were so badly damaged or destroyed that it was nearly impossible to identify them all. So I'd really like to just start off by dedicating this episode to not only the victims whose identities we know that we are going to talk about today, but also the ones who we don't know. Right. Right. Because we we just, we don't know who they are. And sadly, we probably never will. Now, we kind of left off, we ended last week's episode with Leonard Lake giving his very incelly speech in his armchair. Oh, I know yeah. there wasn't a video attached to it, but he was in the video. He's sitting in an armchair talking about the Operation Miranda and finding a sex slave and oh, all of that God. stuff that he wanted to do. And oh, and keeping her in his bunker. The yes. stupid dick. Yes. Yeah. Oh. And while he was doing that, Charlie Ng was spending time in prison for robbing the armories at Kay Bay in Hawaii, where he was stationed while he was in the military. And... Of course, while he was in prison, Leonard Lake, like you just said, was diligently working away at his bunker. So he would place ads, Leonard would place ads in magazines and newspapers and recruit some local teenagers to help with the massive project and would also keep these encrypted like diary entries. And he kept this diary from the time Charlie went to jail all the way through barring like a few months here and there where he would say, I couldn't write my journal over the last little while. It's too sensitive. Oh, Things better left unwritten down. Yeah, I never understood why people wrote it down. (laughs) But he wrote everything else down, so it's stupid. (sighs) Um, So he would keep these encrypted journal entries detailing everything he was doing, and he would write the entries in code so that he could kind of cover his tracks had the journals ever been found. Of course, no one can crack your code. No, it was very easy to crack, I'll say that. (laughs) Now, he wrote mostly of Operation Miranda, and like I said last week, Operation Miranda was actually named for the main character and victim of the book The Collector by John Fowles, and this book was actually turned into a movie in 1965, and for the sake of research, I wanted to be thorough I rented the movie. I couldn't find it. Rented it? I, and I have no idea how to download you, things. You rented, I rented it off YouTube. the video store? No, I rented, it from, I rented it from YouTube. It was only $3. <laughs> but you know what? Like, it was a really great movie in terms of, like, a movie. Like, I'm not really into, like, those old, like, very few movies, like, pre-70s. Yeah. I'll say. There are a few good 1960s flicks that I love. I love some Like It Hot which I think may be even older. I, I don't know. Um, and I love the movie Psycho. It's a classic. Sure. This one I never heard of, but I, I was pleasantly surprised. It was a really great movie. Hmm. But you can really see how not only Leonard Lake, but we've talked about other serial killers. Like I think we said last week, Bar- Bob Burdello also really loved this book and movie. You can see why they would be fascinated with the idea of what's happening. Really? So it's basically about like this lonely butterfly collector and he becomes obsessed with this girl and her name's Miranda. He doesn't know her personally, but he's like obsessed with her. Yeah. 
Is um, there a remake of that? That sounds familiar. Maybe? I'm not sure. Huh. Rob seemed to think so, too, but I couldn't find anything. Maybe you've just heard of this movie. Maybe. Yeah. So there's a lot of similarities between what Leonard Lake does and Charlie Yang do together, actually, and what Freddie Clegg, who's the main villain of the story in the in The Collector, and all the way down to, like, the way that their bunker is concealed is very similar to the way it's concealed in The Collector. Uh. It's very, yeah... But it was a great movie. I highly recommend it. If anybody, if you haven't seen it, go watch it because it was really good. Like, it's a fictional tale. Terrific film. Do you think that, like, the writer was ever like, oh, fuck, what have I done? Probably not. Okay, good. Because that probably would like, be a oh, lot of fuck, guilt. what have I done? <laughs> right? Holy shit. Yeah. My book is so popular. The people are even mimicking it. <laughs> I keep getting all these five-star reviews from someone named R. Ramirez. I don't understand. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> anyways um i was actually listening to another podcast about this case and um everybody's probably heard this podcast last podcast on the left they're so famous um but they do like a five-part series or something on this and uh (laughs) excuse me one thing that uh they said they were talking about was like what if leonard lake you know how i told you he makes all his videos and stuff what if he was around in the internet age Uh like what he would probably have like an entire following online, like an entire yeah. like eight chan yeah. in following. He'd, he'd be on live, like, hey guys, <laughs> you know, just popping up to say hello. People are like commenting, we love you. Take Show us shirt. the bunker. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. And, and just he's like, like a fan of like reading pro. the comments. Okay, well, I'll show you the bunker later. It's out in the back. So, you know, I'll lose Wi-Fi. So we'll just do that a bit later. And then it's like just all men's rights activists, just balding <laughs> fat men going through midlife crisis Neck talking beers. about women. <laughs> and then the other thing they said in that podcast, do you remember last week when we were talking about, um, well, I told you how everything Leonard like talks about is in like, this is a secret op. Or whatever, this Operation Miranda. He referred to, like, mundane things as operations using his, like, military jargon. The one thing they said, do you remember when I told you about how he ate all the chocolate to, like, constipate himself? Oh, yeah. They called it Operation Fondue Tube, and I was (laughs) dying. Oh, my God. (laughs) I ate Operation Brownie Packet, or Brownie Pockets. Oh, gee. I was dead. Oh, my God. I was laughing so hard in the car. Now, if you guys haven't listened to the last podcast on the left, you probably should because they're so famous and they're really funny. So that's all I have to say about that. There you go. Charlie Ng would walk out of Leavenworth Prison on June 29th, 1984. He would actually travel around a bit, meet up with some friends, and he even had a girlfriend who had been writing him letters in prison, which, oh, yikes. I never understood how people can do that. Just be like, you know what? I'm going to start writing this pri- like this criminal and then turn him into my man. Like, <laughs> you know, like, marry this guy in jail who murdered people. Well, I guess at this point, Charlie Yang hadn't murdered anyone. He just robbed the armory. So, but he's still weird. Yeah. It, no, it's just a weird concept of writing into prisoners. And- so the reason why Charlie, the, there's the, the other book I read. So the first one I read was Die for Me by Don Lasseter. And then the second one I read was called No Kill, No Thrill. And the reason why it was called that was because Charlie Yang used to walk around just saying that. No kill, no thrill. Like just, okay. 
And that was like his slogan. And he said there was something else he said too, but I can't remember what it is right now because he's a piece of shit and I don't care. It's like a slogan from a video game, but like way before his time because not in the 80s, they wouldn't have like Call of Duty. Oh, no yeah. Kill, no I was going to say they had video games in the 80s, but yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> they wouldn't have that. But yeah, No Kill, No Thrill was like his favorite thing to say. Anyways, he's dumb. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he had this girlfriend. He met up with her, hung out with her for a bit, and then he headed to over to San Francisco to meet up with Leonard Lake. Now, Leonard had decided that the best way to scout out his potential victims was that they needed to find a base of operations. So he had actually rented a basement apartment in the city near Golden Gate Park to serve this purpose. And he was kind of living at Cricket Balazs, his ex-wife's cabin in Wilseyville. Now, they would spend or find their first victim, allegedly, on July 11th, when a 36-year-old man named Donald Albert Galetti posted a personal ad in the newspaper called The Spectator. It was like an underground newspaper sure. back in the day. Now, Galetti, he was a DJ at a San Francisco radio station. He was openly gay and lived with a roommate and his good friend, whose name was Richard Carrazza. He made a good income from his job and was able to live a comfortable lifestyle. He was a pretty sexually adventurous guy, and the ad he had placed indicated that he was interested in performing oral sex on straight men. Oh, now, it's believed that Leonard and Charles placed their target on Galetti and went to his apartment that night to kill him. This is possibly for financial reasons, because what we'll see is that, and we saw this last week or last episode when we talked about how Leonard killed his brother Donald and he was cashing his disability checks, yeah, yeah. and then he killed his friend Charles Gunner and was cashing his disability checks to for an income. And I think that they, they never said this explicitly in the books, but I think that... This is what ha- was happening, that that's why they targeted this guy, was to rob him and kill him, rob him, clean out his apartment, sure. and steal everything. Because Leonard was getting worried, actually, about cashing Charles Gunner's checks. He was getting worried of being caught. So, but I think what they didn't count on was that Donald had a roommate. Uh-oh. So, it was only moments after they arrived at Donald Galetti's apartment that he was fatally shot, like, right away. Jesus. His roommate heard the loud popping from his room, and he hid until he believed that the murderers had left the apartment. Mm -hmm. And when he thought that they were gone, Richard ran to check on his roommate. And as he was doing so, the intruder, probably Charles Zhang, based on the description, re-entered the room and shot Richard in the chest and quickly ran away. Jesus. Thankfully, Richard Carrazzo wasn't fatally injured and was able to call 911. He would survive his injuries, but his roommate, Donald Galetti, wasn't as lucky. Donald succumbed to his injuries just 24 hours later. Mm. Now, Richard, the roommate, was able to give police a description of the shooter, who he said was a Chinese man wearing thick glasses. And I don't think I said this in the last episode, but Charlie Ng was known for having very thick prescription glasses. Mm, The pop bottle kind. Yes. He said that the man was thin and stood about five foot eight, and police were also able to deter- to determine that the weapon used was a twenty two caliber pistol. Wow. Now, just a couple weeks later, 29-year-old Harvey Dubs would also place an ad in the newspaper, but his ad was different. Harvey was a graphic designer and worked for a printing firm called Petrov Graphics, a job that he had held for roughly 11 years. Harvey was married to his wife, Deborah, and the two had a 16-month-old son called Sean. He was described by his employer as extraordinarily conscientious and loyal. Now, when Harvey didn't arrive for his shift on July 26, 1984, his boss knew something wasn't right. 
He was even more concerned when a man calling himself James Bright phoned Harvey's work office and left a message with the secretary stating that Harvey and his family had to make an emergency trip to Washington on a family matter. Now, Harvey Dub's boss, they had worked together for 11 years. Mm -hmm. He thought, if there was an emergency, why didn't he call me at home? I would have given him the time off. Why is he having somebody call me at the office and leave a message? Just fishy. Yeah, he really felt there was something up with that. Now, the evening before this, Deborah had been on the phone with her best friend, Karen. Uh, They had been friends for years. I think even since maybe they were kids, but a long time. And they just, she knew Deborah really well, like a sister almost. Deborah told Karen about the events of her day, but she also let her know that they were her, that she was expecting someone later that evening who was looking to rent Harvey Dub's camera equipment. So he had placed an ad in the newspaper offering to rent out all of his video equipment that Mm -hmm. he had. And this was something he did pretty regularly to make extra cash on the side. And he actually had a whole side business that he called Video Dubs, where he would do professional video recordings of like weddings, special occasions. I almost said funerals, but that's definitely not something you want to record on video. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. Christenanes, for example. (laughs) Um, But when he wasn't doing the actual recording himself, he would rent out all that equipment. And being that this is the 80s, that kind of stuff was probably really expensive to buy straight out. Oh, sure. So renting That's it. That's that whole shoulder camera. Oh, yeah. That was like, okay. yeah. This is why our parents, our dads had like biceps. Because yeah. they had like shoulder muscles for days because they would walk. I remember my dad Those walking shoulder- around Disney World all day long with that video camera yeah. on his shoulder. My dad Insane. had one too. And they were monstrous. Yeah. And then they got smaller and smaller and smaller and finally just handheld in front of your face. But and now yeah. they're just on your phone. You don't even need one. Yeah, really. <laughs> Oh, how times have changed. Oh, man, it was a different time. (laughs) Well, and like I said, the equipment was probably really expensive. And, you know, so finding someone who would rent it out at like a fraction of the price was probably like a sweet deal, right? Absolutely. So Deborah would hang up the phone with Karen and would tell her friend that the customer that they were expecting had arrived. And not long after hanging up the phone, the Dub's neighbor, who lived kind of like diagonally across the hall, her name was Doris Murphy, she reported that she witnessed a young Asian man walking down the outdoor stairs from the Dub's' apartment. Uh She stated that the man was carrying a large oblong-shaped suitcase, or duffel bag, I should say. I was going to say, oblong-shaped suitcase. I think there's an easier word for that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or duffel bag, I should say. And he appeared to be struggling with the weight of it. She also saw that Harvey Dub's Volkswagen Rabbit had backed up the narrow street and a man with short, thick arms emerged from the vehicle. And I've got to say, this is likely Leonard Lake. We know this. But short, thick arms. That's giving me very T-Rex vibes. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't like it. I don't like short, thick arms, but like describing Leonard Lake. (laughs) Yeah. Now he's neck beard with short, thick arms. I'm living for it. It's a perfect way to to describe him. So when the Asian man got into the car, she watched as he struggled to hoist the suitcase into the trunk of the car before the two men drove away. For some reason, Deborah's friend Karen, who she had been on the phone with earlier, started to get a really weird feeling that something was wrong. And she tried to contact Deborah, but got no answer. She continued throughout the entire night and into the next morning to get a hold of her friend. But when she had no success, she ended up asking her husband, who worked in the city, to drop by the Dubs' apartment to check on them. That's some, like, crazy intuition feeling. I like, feel like holy I would know if something happened to you, too. Will you please? Because I live here alone and yeah, anyone know. could murder. Um, please take that out. <laughs> no, 
<laughs> Anyone could murder you. No one murder me, please. <laughs> um, so she had her husband go and check on him, check on the, on the family. And Karen's husband later said that as he was approaching the door to their apartment, he just felt tingles on the back of his neck. Oh, he was gosh. just like, something feels off. How creepy. And the first thing that struck him as odd when he got to the door was that Deborah's keys were still hanging from the lock. Mm. When he entered the apartment, he was met with absolute silence, but he did notice a few things. He noticed that there were dirty dishes in the kitchen sink sitting in soapy water, which he knew Deborah would never leave okay. the dishes like that. And as he continued to look through the apartment, he just still didn't see any sign of the family, but he did notice that all of Harvey's recording equipment was gone, along with an assortment of VHS tapes. Uh-oh. Now, Barbara Spreaker was the downstairs neighbor, the apartment. The apartment where the Dubs lived was an older building. It was like a house, I think. I haven't, I couldn't find a picture of it, but I believe it was like almost like a house or like a walk a up townhouse thing. Yeah, yeah. So Barbara Spreaker, she lived downstairs below them, and because it was an older building, Barbara said that she could often hear Harvey and Deborah just walking around and Baby Sean crying through the old creaky floors. And when news that the Dubs had mysteriously vanished the night before kind of started circulating. Barbara was surprised, but almost pleased when she heard mo- movement in the apartment up- upstairs. Right. She thought, okay, like, okay, they've come back, back yeah. right? She assumed that maybe they had returned from an unexpected trip or a family emergency or whatever. So as Barbara was leaving her apartment at around 1130 a.m. on the Friday morning, she heard the door to the Dubs apartment slam shut. And when she turned around to wave at who she thought was going to be one of her neighbors, she realized that the person leaving was a man she had never seen before. Uh-oh. She described him as an Asian man wearing thick glasses. Wow. The man was carrying some heavy bags and quickly headed down past Barbara on the stairs without saying a word. She followed him outside and tried to get his attention. She was shouting like, hey, like, you know, like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Have you seen my friends? And he just kept going, completely ignoring her as though she wasn't even there. Like, just walked like he didn't hear a thing. She continued to follow him until Harvey Dubs Volkswagen Rabbit pulled up on the street next to him and she jumped, and he jumped in. The car quickly screeched away. She was able to describe the driver of the car as a middle-aged man with a bald head and a beard and short, (laughs) short, thick arms. For the rest of the day, Barbara had an uneasy feeling about what she had just witnessed, and that feeling grew even stronger when she heard even more noises in the apartment at around midnight that night. Now, her and her husband would look through the Dubs' window from the street, and they said that they could see a man who looked like the driver of the car from earlier uh, in the apartment. He left carrying another dark bundle from the apartment. When Barbara reported what she had seen to the police, she was able to provide them with her own sketch of the Asian man that she had drawn herself. Ooh, she an artist. Yeah. And later it would be found to be a striking resemblance to Charlie Ng, which I'm sure nobody is surprised about. What a like great skill, though. Be like, you know what? I'm going to draw this out real quick. Yeah. Like, for me, it would be a stick person with yeah. glasses. It would look like the guy from that news blooper. The, the one. Oh, the- yeah. <laughs> guys, we'll have to post a picture of you guys. If you know, you know. But there is a very funny news blooper of a guy. That is very poorly drawn, and when they show the actual guy, it looks exactly like the poorly drawn guy. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. If you know, you know. Now, the Dubs family disappearance was reported by the police by Harvey's father. The two detectives that worked the case from the start were Detective Irene Brune and Inspector Glenn uh, Pamfloff. 
I think. Oh, what a it's great an, name. Yeah. Now, Irene, Irene Brune is in a couple of documentaries that I watched on this, and she okay. was um, really involved in a lot of other stuff that happens with this case later as well because of her involvement with the Doves. Sure. So, and she was very dedicated to this. Uh, both were extremely experienced and dedicated to their jobs, and when they first entered the Dubs residence, Deborah's father was there with the detectives. Mm. He let them know that Deborah would never leave without taking her favorite black suit along with a medicine kit. They, she never went on any trips without taking these two things. I mean, you never know when you're going to need a black suit. Or a medicine kit. It's very important. So both items were found still in the apartment. Upon further inspection of the residence, they found that a telephone wire in the master bedroom had been cut from the wall. Mm-hmm. The cord was found tied to a door to a doorknob where it appeared someone had been tied up. Oh, shit. The furniture in Sean's room, the baby, had also been arranged in a, pecu- in a peculiar way. It said that, like, there were there was furniture, like, all around his crib, like, pushed up against it, and the crib uh, was pushed against the wall. No. So, a little weird. Oh, I hate that they heard a baby. From what the detectives could glean from the preliminary investigation of the scene was that whoever came to the Dubs' home did so before Harvey returned from work. This is what they're assuming right now, right at the get-go. Okay. They figured that the suspect was the person who had answered the ad to rent the video equipment, that Deborah had probably let him in, or them, mm-hmm. in voluntarily. They figured the intruders used threats of violence against the baby to subdue Deborah, which you can imagine would Oh, work. yeah. And that when Harvey arrived home later, they would use those same threats to keep him quiet as well. They assumed that the intruders waited until late at night to abduct the family while neighbors were sleeping, so they stayed there. Like, what kind of cruel torture is that, you know? Yeah. Stayed there at the apartment waiting for people to be asleep so that, you know, they could get out undetected. And out of fear of them, of any harm coming to their young son, both Harvey and Deborah complied. Of course. Now, Irene Brune took stock of everything she could find that she thought might help them in their investigation. Thankfully, Harvey Dubs kept meticulous records of his recording equipment, even keeping the original boxes for a lot of the items. She, uh, Irene Brown was able to find receipts and even serial numbers of most of the equipment that appeared to be missing from the apartment. Wow. This is going to come in handy. I bet. Much later. Yeah. The next person we're going to talk about is a man named Randy Jacobson. He was 35 and lived in an apartment complex known as the Pink Palace to locals. He had fought in Vietnam and he had come back, according to people who knew him, as a shadow of his former self. He battled drug and alcohol addiction and he had hitchhiked from Georgia to California in 1980 to escape his, quote, mental demons and a life that was traumatized by the past, unquote. Oh, I cannot imagine what he saw. Yeah. Now, he lived off disability as his income, and he would actually end up meeting and dating a woman whose name was, uh, I think you pronounce this, Mesha McLennan. And the two of them lived together for a time at the Pink Palace. She described Jacobson as a local character, kind of a street person who couldn't keep down a job. Mm. The relationship was often rocky due to their shared addictions, But at some point, Misha would start seeking a more stable life, and she would enroll at San Francisco State University and move from the Pink Palace to an apartment in the 2400 block of 19th Avenue in San Francisco. She and Jacobson continued their relationship long distance. And she moved there only because it was closer to where she was going to go to school. In her new apartment building, Misha met a man calling himself Alan Dre. 
this was a fake name. And Ellen Dre was Leonard Lake. Okay. Now, she was living in the apartment apartment building that, remember, I told you Leonard Lake had a basement apartment there as a base of operations right. to find victims. But he was calling himself Alan Dre, and um, he would drop by to sell weed at the apartment building when he wasn't searching for his potential M-girls for Operation Miranda. The apartment manager of the building described the man he knew as Alan Dre as a really strange dude, kind of cool, <laughs> but kind of not cool. <laughs> you know, just not cool. <laughs> just not cool. So when Maisha met Alan Dre, she was immediately suspicious of him. She uh, she said he made her feel pretty uneasy. She said he was a little friendly, but a little too friendly. Charming, but too charming. She said, I found him weird. And he bothered me a lot. Dre had said he was looking for someone to manage his marijuana enterprise. And the apartment manager. Enterprise. Yeah. His operation. <laughs> he doesn't have an em- enterprise. I'll tell you that. He uh, sells like dime bags on the corner. That's my <laughs> enterprise. Um, so the apartment manager had suggested that Misha's friend, Randy Jacobson, would be a good candidate for the job. Okay. No. Of course, Alan Dre would also try to pressure Maisha into posing for nude. nude I program, mean, which I, and, you but knew. you know what? She eventually <laughs> did. And what you'll find is that a lot of these women, and I think I kind of touched on this last time, was like most of them were just like, "Fine, I'll leave do me it. the fuck alone. Just, just one, and then go away forever." Yeah. So Dre, uh, Dre also tried to convince both Maisha and Randy to move to his cabin in Wilseyville and work as caretakers for his weed crops. But they both declined the offer due to the impracticalities of the deal. Like, Misha was in school. She didn't want to commute all the way from the mountains. And I don't know why Brandy Jacobson said no, but... Maybe he just had a sixth sense of this is ridiculous. Yeah. Nevertheless, Al and Dre would continue to hang around the couple, pushing his way into their lives. He would eventually inquire about buying the couple's van. And he actually dropped by one morning... But he came by super early, and Misha was running late for school, so she didn't have time to talk about selling the van. Right. She's like, this is not a good time. But he offered her a ride to school. She did make it there safely. Good. But when Ooh. she returned home that day, her boyfriend, Randy, was gone. Oh, no. Now, he was kind of like a – what do you call it when people go all over the place all the time? Like a no, – not a nomad. Yeah, uh, a nomad. He oh, was kind of okay. nomadic, yeah. And uh, after three days, she received a note in her mailbox, alleging, allegedly from Randy. And the note said that Randy had gone to San Jose to meet a guy named Steve and help with this big dope operation. Oh, yeah. This is so obvious that it's Leonard Lake. I'm sorry. She said she couldn't be sure if the handwriting in the note was actually Randy's or not. But like I said, Randy was known for just up and leaving, but something was telling Misha this was kind of different. In the note, he said that he would be back in a week to pick up some of his things, but when he didn't show up, Misha would start canvassing the neighborhood asking if anyone had seen her boyfriend. Yeah. After even more time had passed, she ended up checking on, like, in on his bank accounts, and she was she found that his disability checks were actually still being cashed, and this was enough to put her mind at ease, and she figured he was okay and just having an adventure somewhere. Oh, no. Yeah. Shit. At the time, she never thought anything bad had happened to him, and she certainly didn't think he had been murdered. Randy, unfortunately, was never reported missing to the police, and he would never be seen seen or heard from again. Another person who lived at the Pink Palace, his name was Maurice Rock. He was 37. He was an African-American man, and he played guitar and lived for music. He was also a heavy pot user and was friends with a woman named Sherilyn Porter, or Sherilyn... Okoro, as she had renamed herself. 
both Maurice and Cheryl Lynn would end up accepting a name from a pot dealer named Alan Dre and sadly would never be seen again either. Oh, no. It was Wait, an, they accepted a what? An unknown deal. People oh. knew that they that Alan Dre had made them some kind of deal or some kind of offer for an employment, but nobody knew what it was. Oh, and they no. disappeared and were never seen again. It's very interesting that so far he's killed, what, like eight people, but they're all – nobody's from the bunker. Like – that is that we wild. Know of. That we don't know if they were in the bunker or not because, like I said at the beginning, a lot of the remains are so badly decomposed. And we'll get there next week about what they found down in the bunker, and it explains a little bit more. So, are they like knocking them out and carrying them out, or are they killing them in their apartments and then I carrying think, them out? So, what I think is happening right now is that yes, they're killing them in the apartments and they're carrying them out. What I believe happened with Harvey Dub's family is that all those packages that they were removing, the oblong shaped duffel bag, yeah, the heavy, body parts. the heavy. Not just body. Well, they could be body parts. I don't know about that, but one uh, in one source I read, they thought that it was the full bodies of people coming out, yeah, shoved into into for sure duffel bags. Um, and so I think that they were doing that, taking them back to Wilseyville and getting rid of the bodies, and that um that most of these murders were for financial reasons. Okay, so they're just setting themselves up first, yes. to have these sex slaved. Yes, people. They want to. They don't want to. They want money, but they don't want to have to work very hard for it. Leonard Lake, we'll see, doesn't have a job at all, yeah. really, at this point. Um, we're gonna get there in a minute. Charlie Ng does have a job, but um, yeah, like there. Are, Leonard has a real problem with people who live off social assistance, but when it comes to him living off of other people's social assistance, he doesn't. He's seem okay to care. with it. Yeah. So he yeah goes after these pe- these poor people that are so unsuspecting they just think he's just a random guy in their apartment building and ends up murdering them for no reason other than probably financial gain so geez remind me never to use like marketplace or anything like that ever again well the reason why i mentioned those um three people that i just mentioned maurice rock a uh, cheryl okoro and um randy jacobson is because in leonard lake's journals he mentioned something called operation pink palace step one two and three and i believe that he's referring to these three missing people of course because they're all from that building he does this uh specifically mention that he was never able to actually get randy jacobson's van because it was parked on the street and it was towed away before he could go and steal it um, however, he does say that he was able to successfully have the address changed for Jacobson's disability checks to be sent to a post office box where he could collect them and use Randy's ID to cash them. Wow. That's yeah. like thought out shit too. So and like you'll, you'll see that he lives off of these other people for quite some time for, I mean, we're in 1984 right now. So for at least a year, but he murdered his brother you know, a few years before that, yeah. and Charles Gunner, he murdered, and he's so he's just living off of other people's money. Oh. So who is he? Like, I, he's just an awful, awful human. Yeah. So during the fall of 1984, both Charlie and Leonard would move around quite a bit. So Leonard, like I said, would spend a lot of time at Cricket Balaz's cabin in Wilseyville, but he also was kind of, he had sort of rekindled a relationship with his mother, so he was living with her on and off. Um, and he had also managed to convince his half-sister Janet to allow Charlie Ng to live in an apartment she had. And I wasn't clear on whether she lived there with Charlie, but it seemed mostly like he lived there alone. Hmm. I wouldn't want to live with Charlie Ng. He seems like a weird, real weirdo. I mean, you might end up dead in the middle of your sleep. So, yeah. yeah. 
Charlie had also managed to get a job at Dennis Moving Company, bringing in funds for the duo. The only thing that they didn't have at this point was a reliable means of transportation. So on Halloween 1984, Leonard wrote in his journal, spent the day looking for potential ops. And this is referring to his hunt for a vehicle. And if we know anything about Leonard Lake, we know that he probably wasn't going to a dealership to buy an affordable sedan. No, he's not going. He's not looking for a sensible Honda. That's for sure. Um, It's very funny that you do say Honda, though. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, In... A newspaper article, Leonard had actually spotted an ad placed by a man named Paul Cosner. He was looking to sell his 1980 Honda Prelude. No way. In his journal, Leonard writes, Honda Prelude with an owner who could pass for me. No freaking way. You can pass for me? I hate that so much. So Paul Cosner was originally from Reynoldsburg, Ohio. And he had moved with his sister, Sharon, to San Francisco 20 years earlier. Now, his sister, Sharon, is in a lot of documentaries on this as well, okay. most notably one. I just watched, like, a three-part documentary um, on oxygen that mm. I found online. And she was featured in a lot of it, talking a lot about her brother. She, They were extremely close. Uh, Paul and Sharon, like I just said, were extremely close. And after <laughs> moving to San Francisco in the 70s, the siblings would do everything together. They attended free concerts in the park. They enjoyed, you know, just having the carefree lives of being in their early 20s at the time. Yeah. In San Francisco in the 70s. Having a great time. Probably a dream. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Love it. Now, Paul was a highly educated man. He had earned his Bachelor of Education from Ohio University, as well as a master's degree in vocational rehabilitation from Kent State. Wow. He was a car and motorcycle enthusiast. He had actually once been offered a job writing in the motorcycle news for the motorcycle news in Long Beach and himself and his sister would actually move out there for a time so that he could do that job. Oh, imagine living in Long Beach then. So How great. fun would that be? Now, at the time of crossing paths with Leonard Lake, Paul was 39 years old. He had a long-term girlfriend at the time named Marilyn Namba. Marilyn and uh, Paul had been together for five years, and although they didn't live together, they did live in the same apartment building. She just lived on a different floor in her own apartment. Convenient as fuck. Yeah. That's actually, like... A sweet setup. Yeah. Something to be desired and, like, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen those apartments where, like, people have set up, like, from their balconies, like, a slide? Oh, my God. (laughs) could do that of mine <laughs> i could just get the apartment like diagonally and under you that'd be so cool i, I would just... be terrified i would never do yeah. it on the, this high up but you see i've seen people do that like connect them somehow so that they can get to like their family member's apartment or whatever it could be like we could make it like a tunnel like a little hamster tunnel <laughs> like... <laughs> you could just like shimmy just, like, down shimmy. <laughs> i don't know we just take the stairs back up yeah <laughs> shimmy down take the elevator back up yep <laughs> So, yeah, so they lived in the same apartment building. Now, Paul had recently shared with his sister that he was actually planning on proposing to Marilyn during a trip to Europe that they had been saving up for the following spring. They were very much in love. They did everything together. Sharon and Marilyn were good friends. Everything was working out. Well, yeah, their names rhyme. Like, how can you not be good friends? 
Sharon and Marilyn? Sh- well, I guess maybe the way that you said it, Sharon and Marilyn, it just, it, it sounded rhyming the way sounds, you said yeah. it. <laughs> now, maybe not. Paul had once also been a partner in a small car dealership called Marin Motors. He had ended up selling his shares of the business, but he started selling his own vehicles through ads that he placed in newspapers and magazines. Mm-hmm. On November 2nd, 1984, Paul let Marilyn know that he was planning on meeting up with a prospective buyer of his 1980 copper-colored Honda Prelude. He told her he was selling it to that, quote, weird guy I told you about. Oh, yeah, that's how you – let me just meet you yeah. to sell my car then. He told Marilyn that he was meeting up with the guy at 6 p.m. and should be about an hour or so. Um, they had made plans to have dinner that night. Like, they were going to make dinner and then watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, I believe. So very wholesome. And he was going to do that. He was going to stop by after he made the sale of the car. Paul would never show up to that dinner date. Marilyn ended up calling Paul's sister the next morning when he didn't show up because this was not like Paul to mm-hmm. not to just not show up. And of course, she had called the apartment several times looking for him. Yeah. Um, she was terribly worried. But it, what it said in the book was that she didn't want to appear to be like that crazy girlfriend and would pa- panicking and calling all of his friends looking for him. That kind After of thing. five years, girl, be crazy. Yeah. Let your crazy out, honey. Well, Sharon, his sister, thought otherwise. Yeah. She knew her brother and she knew that he would never stand up Marilyn, his, the love of his life, without calling and letting her know that everything was okay. Mm-hmm. So the two women got together. They went through Paul's address book and called literally everyone that he knew. Nobody had seen him. So imagine, like, like we don't have address books anymore, you know. And if you don't leave your phone around and unlocked, yeah, no one's getting in your shit. Thank God we have social media. But like my husband, my husband doesn't use social media, so he has no contacts on there. Like it would be hard to trace him. Yeah. But, like, just there was a time where we used to write names and phone numbers and addresses in a book. Like, that's wild. (laughs) Like, how do you find missing people now? (laughs) Unless you can track their cell tower I guess so, yeah. I guess because we always have our technology on us. Uh Yeah. That is helpful, but... Elon, Elon Musk lost the uh, the bet or the, the bid or whatever the fuck it's called in government when they – government said, no, you cannot implant chips, chips into in people. people's brains. But you know what? Like, if you're a willing participant in the program, again, I think it would be Do something they already track us using our cell phones. Well, I mean, yeah. What's the difference between implanting in your brain and having it in our hand? I mean, there's lots of difference, but you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah. In, in terms of tracking purposes, yeah. it's just in my hand, not in my brain. Right. So Sharon and Marilyn also started calling hospitals and police stations, Mm -hmm. and they tried to file a missing persons report, but were told that Paul needed to be gone for 24 hours before he was considered missing. Plus, he was a 39-year-old grown man. Yeah, at that point, you could have just left. Right. If he wanted to go missing, he was within every legal right to do so, and there was not much they could do about it. If I want to ever want to go off the grid, I'll tell you I'm not missing. Okay, just so you know. And then if I do go off the grid and I didn't tell you, I am missing. You are missing. Got it. So Sharon and Marilyn also started creating their own missing persons posters and distributed them around San Francisco, telling anyone and everyone who would listen to them about their loved one's disappearance. They filled them in on who Paul was, you know, tried to really humanize him so people would care about this missing man. They even took out a whole spread in a newspaper begging anyone for information on Paul's whereabouts. So for the next seven months, Sharon and Marilyn would keep Paul's apartment, pay his rent and bills, and track his bank account, hoping that he would return to them and that there would be some sign of life there, right? Mm. Paul was sadly never seen again. 
On the same day of Paul's disappearance, Leonard Lake wrote a haunting message in his journal. (gasps) It said, Met Charlie, performed op. Met resistance for the first time. Unsuccessful in obtaining credit cards or bank codes. Drove to the country for completion. Canceled Charlie's running debt to me. So you can imagine what that's referring to. What the fuck? That's exactly saying... I kidnapped this dude. He put up a fight, but I won in the end. Couldn't which, get his information. Which is why there was no movement on his bank accounts. On Paul wow. Cosner's bank accounts, right? Fucked up. Yeah. So like I said earlier, Charlie had been working for a San Francisco moving company called Dan- Dennis Moving. Charlie Charlie was recommended for the position at the moving company by a 24-year-old man named Cliff Pertnow, who... He knew Charlie's aunt. And remember last week I said when Charlie came to the U.S., he had lived with his aunt. Yeah, yeah. So that's how he knew Charlie. At first, Charlie and Cliff didn't get along when when Charlie first started working at Dennis Moving. Cliff was Charlie's boss, and Charlie didn't like being told what to do unless it was, of course, by Leonard. Mm. After a while, though, Charlie did seem to warm up to Cliff, and the two would kind of have a professional acquaintanceship. I wouldn't call it a friendship by any means, but... They were acquaintances. Okay. About four months after Charlie started working at the moving company, Cliff would mysteriously disappear and never be seen again. A friend who had dropped by Cliff's house on the morning of his disappearance noticed that his blue Suzuki motorcycle was in the driveway. But Cliff was nowhere to be seen. So his friend left, went to work for the day, and then dropped by later that night to check on him, and he found that the house was still empty. However, this time, Cliff's motorcycle was gone. Uh Uh-oh. The day after his disappearance, Cliff was supposed to attend a Super Bowl party at his friend's house. He never showed up for that party. This was alarming to his friends and coworkers. And even more alarming, so he had actually won the Super Bowl pool. Right. And he didn't even call or show up to collect that money. So that was that was weird. He continued to miss his shift at at work, and everyone knew something was really wrong here because it really wasn't like Cliff to just shaft his responsibilities like that. Like, he just wasn't a guy to just not show up to work. Sure. Dennis Goza, who owned the the moving company that both Cliff and Charlie worked for, did eventually end up receiving a note allegedly from Cliff. The note read, Dennis, sorry to leave on such short notice, but a new job, place to live, and a honey all came together at the same time. And a honey? Okay. There was also a request to have his final paycheck forwarded to a post office in Calaveras County near Wilseyville, which is also where Leonard Lake is living at the time. Imagine that. Coincidence? No. I think not. Dennis Goza sent the check as requested, and it was cashed a few weeks later, so he's like, okay, he cashed the check. A friend of Cliff also received a similar letter that asked him to send the winnings from the Super Bowl, Bowl pool that he had won. How would how would Leonard know that? Because Charlie works with Cliff. Uh, so he would know that Cliff won that Super Bowl pool because the co-workers were involved in it. Right, right, so. right, right. Cliff's estranged girlfriend would later go to his apartment to collect some of her belongings. But when she arrived, she found that most of her and Cliff's belongings had been completely cleared out of the home. Shit. So she at first was pissed, but she didn't know what was happening, right? Yeah. In February of 1985, Jeff Gerald, another employee of Dennis Moving, would also go missing. Holy crap. Jeff was a 25-year-old musician from Arveda, California. At the time of his disappearance, he was living with a roommate and played in a band called Crash and Burn. Sounds sick. On February 24th, someone called Jeff at his home to ask him to help with a move. 
he offered Jeff $100 in bus fare to help him out. Now, this was an off-the-clock move, so it wasn't through the moving company that him and Charlie worked at. It was something just on his own time. Jeff would tell his roommate that he was going to catch a bus to Stockton to meet Charlie from work. Now, Jeff had previously stated that Charlie gave him the creeps because he was always talking about guns and killing. And this is where uh, he would say, he always walks around saying, no kill, no thrill, yeah. no gun, no fun. Oh, okay. Yeah. But times were tough for Jeff and $100 sounded appealing to him at the time. So he agreed to help out. And I got to tell you, $100 sounds appealing at any time, whether at you need the cash time. or not. Yeah. Just give me 100 bucks. I'm happy. Jeff headed off to the bus station that afternoon, telling his roommate that it was just a small job, more than likely be back later that night. Jeff didn't return that night, mm. and a few days later, someone called Dennis Moving, claiming to be a friend of Jeff, stating that Jeff wouldn't be back to work till Tuesday because he was off visiting friends in San Jose. Imagine being like, can you just call my work for me? I'm a little busy. No. Yeah, I can't imagine a scenario, unless you're, like, incapacitated, that you can't call in sick for yourself. Yeah. But if you're just visiting friends in San Jose. And a friend, like, if you called into my work and be like, P.S., Rachel's um She's not at my place in. this weekend. <laughs> She's How weird is yeah. that? Three days after Jeff vanished, his roommate would be would come home to find that all of Jeff's belongings were taken from their apartment. Not so much as a note was left behind. Wow. So his entire room cleaned out. That'd be so shocking. Like yeah. what would you even do? I don't even know. Now a day after Jeff vanished, Leonard Lake would visit a doctor just outside of Wilsleyfall. He was treated for injuries on one of his fingers caused by a gunshot wound. So, shot his and he, finger he came up with a lot of stories i think that he was trying to shoot jeff gerald and he fought him yeah and the gun went off and shot his finger shit um but like i said this is why i say that a lot of these disappearances that are related to leonard and, and charlie seem to be that these people are being murdered for financial gain yeah like why else steal all of somebody's shit out of their apartment yeah. unless you're gonna pawn it or something yeah. sell it somehow it's fucked up a few months later, Mike Carroll would vanish from his home in Malipas after telling his girlfriend, Kathleen Allen, that he was going to meet his friend Charlie in San Francisco. Charlie and Mike knew each other from the military. Mm. He told her that he was just making a day trip, but he never he would never return to the room that they shared at the Best Western where they had been living at the time. On April 14th, 1985. <laughs> I know. Whoa. A lot of weird things happen on your birthday, Rachel. <laughs> this is a year before you're going though. On April 14th, 1985, Kathleen received a call at work that Mike was in trouble. The caller said that Mike had been shot and needed her straight away. The caller also told her that they didn't think that Mike was going to make it and that they were sending a car around to pick her up at work. The person on the phone told her that they would be arriving in a copper-colored Honda Prelude. Mm -mm, Not the sensible Honda. They ended up, or that they ended the call by telling Kathleen, don't say a word to about this to anyone mike is in enough trouble already oh not suspicious at all no despite being in a state of panic kathleen continued to work her shift her mind was rushing with worst case scenarios of what have actually happened to her boyfriend now kathleen had suspected that mike was mixed up in something that was illegal as in the previous weeks he had been going to san francisco making trips but he would come back with cash Oh, yeah. Right? Also so suspicious. She wasn't sure what he was doing, but, you know, something. Something kind of, illegal. Yeah. So Kathleen would call her friend's friend James Bayo or Bayo from work that evening at around 5 p.m. 
She told him what the caller had said about Mike, and her friend was extremely worried about this. Oh. He tried very hard to convince her not to go with these strangers to find her boyfriend, but she wasn't hearing that. She was really All concerned she heard about Mike. Was yeah. Find him. Now, the caller would pick Kathleen up at work and take her to the hotel where she was living so that she could pack a bag. They told her that Mike was up in Lake Tahoe and that they were going to take her to him. While at the hotel, James Bio called back again and tried even harder to convince her not to go. She told him, you know, these guys are really weird. They're trying to take naked photos of me or convince me to take these nude photos. Oh, my God. And she said, but you know what? I... I assure you I will be fine. I'm going to go and get Mike. Once I'm with Mike, everything's going to be okay. And she promised to call James and let him know that she had arrived safely at her location when she got there. She would never make that call and she would never be seen alive again. And Kathleen Allen is actually, I told you last week that there are videotapes of victims that they found later in the bunker. And she is actually in one of these videos and she's in actually several of these vehicles oh no it's not really known how long she was there for based on the people i'm going to tell you about next i think it was just a matter of days before she was murdered um but she was subjected to rape torture oh no mental and physical abuse and just all sorts of of horrible horrible things and like i said there is video not of the actual rape or anything like that happening but there's video of leonard lake speaking to kathleen allen and it is heartbreaking it is not recommended to watch because even though you see nothing it's not graphic there's no nothing happening to her you know what if you know this case you know what has happened and Mm -hmm. what is going to happen um but it's not known how long she was kept there okay but still don't listen well the things are out there. If you happen upon them, again, like I said, they're not graphic, but I just caution against it if it's not yeah. something you want to hear. Yeah, fair enough. Robin Scott Stapley, uh, he was born in Lancaster, California on August 16th, 1958. Scott came from a loving family and experienced a pretty blessed childhood. His parents used to say that they could never lose him in a large crowd because he had bright orange hair that they could spot from anywhere. <laughs> Handy. Yeah. Throughout his life, he would always remain incredibly close with his family, calling his parents every Sunday to check in on them and see how everyone was doing. Aww. Like Paul Cosner, Scott was also a highly educated man. He had attended San Diego State University to study law before changing majors to political science and sociology. He would walk out of university with a Bachelor of Science degree in 1983 and work for a hospital supply firm from that point forward. Hmm. But All of that aside, Scott had another passion in life. He had joined an organization known as the Guardian Angels in San Diego. And I think you probably have heard of these guys. They wear like berets. They would patrol the streets. Okay. And subway stations in New York. Yeah. Now, they were a group that was started in the 1970s. And their original purpose was to reduce dangers in the New York subway system. Mm -hmm. They would basically patrol the platforms and passenger trains where where their presence there would hopefully dissuade would-be muggers from targeting victims. Sure, yeah. As the organization grew, their focus started to shift, and they started helping inner-city children. They would cancel them and provide alternatives to drug and crime culture. Wow, heroes. Yeah. So the creator of this group, Curtis Silva, really took notice of Scott Stapley early on and promoted him to Southwest Area Director. 
He would play a pivotal role in establishing new chapters of the Guardian Angels in Hollywood, San Francisco, Oakland, Beverly Hills, and Las Vegas. Wow. Yeah. It was while backpacking in the Sierra Nevada that Scott would meet his best friend, Lonnie Bond, and the two were inseparable. Lonnie was in a long-term relationship with his girlfriend, Brenda O'Connor. Brenda and Lonnie had met just a few years earlier when Brenda's sister married Lonnie's brother, Arthur. Hmm. Well, that's kind of an interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the two would become smitten with each other, and on April 5th, 1984, they welcomed a son into the world who they called Lonnie Bond Jr., Cute. After the birth of their son, Lonnie and Brenda decided that they wanted to raise their family outside of the hustle and bustle of the big city. They wanted to live somewhere more rural and peaceful and started looking around properties in Northern California. The real estate agent they hired thought that they knew just the right place for the small family and would show them a cabin known as the Carter House just off of Blue Mountain Road near, near Wilseyville. The cabin could be accessed by a dirt road that served just two other houses. When they went to take a look at the property, they noticed, first off, that one of the only two neighbors there had dug into the hillside close to the house and had constructed some sort of large bunker on the property. Oh, no. Nevertheless, Lonnie and Brenda couldn't deny that the cabin was perfect, and they ended up putting in an offer and finalized the deal in January of 1985. Jeez, imagine... You move in and your neighbors are, like, literally neighbors from hell? Yeah, literally. The couple moved into their new home on February 1st, 1985. This is when they first met their neighbor, a man who introduced himself as Charles Gunner. Charles told them that he was a professional photographer, and to extend an olive branch to his new neighbors, he offered to take some family portraits for them. Wow. So is he saying Charles Gunner to cash the the check still? Like, he's still using that name as, like, an alias. Because Leonard, like, remember, he was always... Well, and it looks like Charles is still alive. Right. And he didn't even believe in phones, remember? So why would he give anybody his real name? Right. That's why he was going by Alan Dre at the Pink Palace and, and all of that. So... Because Lonnie Bond and Scott Stapley were so close, Scott was often up at the Bond's cabin in Wilseyville and would also meet the neighbor who was still calling himself Charles Gunner, but we know that this is actually Leonard Lake. Uh, Scott would actually end up purchasing a gun from the neighbor and would get a signed receipt for the purchase on February 5th, 1985. Now, the early on, you know, neighborly relationship that Brenda and Lonnie had with Charles Gunner, a.k.a. Leonard, would soon turn sour. It would turn sour pretty quickly, actually, because Leonard would constantly, constantly hit on Brenda and ask her to pose for photos for him. The nude kind. Like, he's such a pig. Wow. And you know what? He's one of those guys where, like, if you turn him down or, like, no, I'm not interested, no thanks. He's like, whatever, you're fat anyways. Oh, I hate One of those kind of guys. It's always the girl's fault. It's never his fault. It's never that you're a stanky ass. Well, and it's not only, like, pose naked for me. Please pose naked for me. No. Well, whatever, you're fat and ugly. Then why did you want my naked picture? Yeah. (laughs) Like. Off Leonard. Oh, my God. So when she turned down his advances, he became infuriated. According to the book, No Kill, No Thrill, Brenda had once gone into town, and when she returned, someone most likely Leonard, had broken into her house and locked her doors so she couldn't get in. Because imagine, this is the 80s, so you're not locking your doors in the middle of nowhere, especially if you live up in the area they were. Of course not. She would have to break in through one of her windows to get inside. She actually, at one point, because she felt so uncomfortable, and uh, Lonnie, her common-law husband, essentially, he was working away. Lonnie was into some things that 
aren't great, but he by no means contributed to his death. So I won't really get into much of that, but um, he was away a lot. So Brenda would actually call Scott Stapley and say like, can you come and get me and take me out? But she would leave like hairs over the like locks on the windows and like places where if they, she could tell if somebody yeah. had been in the house. Right. And uh, somebody had definitely been in the house. Oh, how creepy. Oh, God, like how violated. So on that particular day, though, where he locked her out of her own house, she would have to break in through one of the windows to get inside. She would start referring to Leonard simply as fuckface, which he is. (laughs) And Leonard wasn't particularly fond of Brenda and Lonnie either. He would become angry that Lonnie and Scott Stapley would shoot guns on the property, which, Leonard, weren't you doing this at the ranch? Isn't that one of the reasons they kicked you out? Yeah. Anyways, again, it's always someone else's fault. Of course. Leonard is never wrong. And he would actually call their landlord on them and try to get them in trouble, get them kicked out of the house, whatever. Mm -hmm. In fact, he took to reporting any small infractions to the landlord just to be petty because he was a dick. Jesus. That being said, in April of 1985, Lonnie would tell Brenda that their neighbors had actually invited him, had invited them over for dinner as sort of a peace offering, a way to bury the hatchet. They were all neighbors, and the best thing they could do was just get along and be civil. Let's put this behind us. Yeah. So on the morning of the dinner, Brenda decided to have a little me time while Lonnie and Scott stayed home with the baby, something she didn't get very often. Of course not. She went into town. She went shopping. She came home in the early evening, but when she got there, she found that both the baby and Scott and Lonnie were all gone. Oh, Nobody no. was in the house. However, Scott Stapley's truck was still in the driveway. Oh, Weird. come on. Why another baby? Where have they gone in the evening with a baby in the middle of nowhere without the truck? Yeah. Before she even had a chance to consider where her family and friend were, Leonard Lake and Charlie Ng barged through the door of her cabin, threw Brenda to the floor, Handcuffed her, and handcuffed her hands behind her back. Oh, come on. The two men dragged her from her home to the cabin next door where they threw her onto a brown armchair. Likely the same armchair that you can see in the video of Leonard Lake talking into his video diary. Uh. In a panic, Brenda started yelling out questions, asking the men what they had done to Lonnie Scott and Lonnie Jr. She asked if they had killed him. They calmly stated that they hadn't killed them, and when she asked what they were planning to do, Leonard Lake responded by saying, that's sort of up to you, Brenda. Now, again, all of this is on video. You can see all of this Uh, on, you can find this on YouTube, this entire exchange, but I'm going to just give you snippets of it. Oh, you are. Not going to play the audio. Oh, okay. I was like, my heart just kind of skipped a beat there. I'm not going to play the audio. I'm going to give you snippets of their exchange just to kind of highlight how cool Leonard Lake and Charlie Ng are and even just their mental games that they play with their victims. Yeah. Um, But I'm not going to play the audio for it's not necessary. Okay, thank you. Brenda continued to question her captors. She asked them why they were doing this to them. They told her it was because they hated her. In fact, everyone in the neighborhood hated her and Lonnie. They told her that they had sent Lonnie and Scott away somewhere where they were going to make a lot of money. When she asked about her baby, they told her, don't worry, there's a family in Fresno that wanted a baby. This is when she screams at them, you can't take my baby away. To which Charlie replies, well, it's better than the baby's dead, right? Oh, come on. Uh. They told Brenda, you've got a choice. We'll give it to you now. You can cooperate with us. By cooperating with us, that means you will stay here as our prisoner. You will work for us. You will watch for us. You will fuck for us. No, nope, kill Or me. you can say, no, I don't want to do that. In which case, we will tie you to the bed. 
we'll rape you, and then we'll take you outside and shoot you. Yeah. It's your choice. Uh, shoot me. Shoot me dead. I'm not about to be raped repeatedly for I mean, long periods of time. I think the key here is that she's thinking about her baby. Sure. The baby, but like, the baby's gone. On camera, you can see Charlie cutting off Brenda's clothes as she cries in protest and begs to see her baby. Charlie simply tells her, nothing is yours now. It'll be totally ours. You can cry and stuff like the rest of them, but it won't do you no good. We are pretty cold hearted, so to speak. And Charlie is the only one you see on camera. You don't see Leonard like on camera, really, (sighs) for any of these things. The truth was... Leonard and Charlie had killed the others. Mm -hmm. They had broken into the cabin while Brenda was out shopping. They were convinced that Lonnie Bond had cash hidden away somewhere, somewhere in the mountains, like he had buried a safe somewhere out there. And when he refused to admit that he had it or tell them where it was, they shot him. Scott safely tried to fight for his life when he was hit in the head by Charlie Ang, but before, uh, sorry, when he was hit in the head by Charlie Ang before being shot execution style in the face. She's in the face. Jesus Christ. It's not known exactly what happened to Lonnie Jr., but. Thank God, don't give us that. Based on blood spatter found at the scene later, it's it's suspected that he was bludgeoned in his crib that night. And when Charlie Ng is eventually apprehended, he draws these very sickening cartoons of him as a chef. Oh, no. With a baby. No, come on. In the picture. And it's very sad. We'll get to that next episode. (laughs) Now, Scott Stapley actually had a girlfriend called Tori Doolin. She had met Leonard Lake on one of the times that she accompanied Scott up to to the Wilseyville Cottage to visit Lonnie and Brenda. But she didn't really know them. She didn't know Leonard or Charlie very well at all. She just had met them a couple of times. Uh Uh-huh. This is why it was ex- extremely weird and surprising to her when Leonard knocked on her door two days after the murders of Scott, Lonnie, and Brenda. And guys, I don't want to uh, say anything bad about Tori Doolin here, but I just have questions that need answering. She has reasons for what happens next, but I have more questions than mm. the than the answers that she's given. Okay. Now, she answered the door and Leonard told Tori, he's still going by Charles Gunner at, Gunner at this point. So he told her that he had found Lonnie, Brenda, and Scott dead in the cabin. He told her that he and Charlie had burned their bodies because he didn't want the police coming around. He also said that the baby was missing and he didn't know where it was. He mentioned to her that he believed the murders were probably related to drugs. Like I said earlier, Lonnie was involved in some things. Mm-hmm. He was involved in some illegal drug activity. And while he had nothing, this had nothing to do with his murder, I do mention it because maybe this is why Tori Doolin takes as little action as she does, which is sure. no action. Oh, yeah. No. So, that. and that she's a, he's a, Leonard Lake is kind of able to convince Tori not to take action. Right? Because I imagine maybe Scott Stapley was involved in this. I don't know. But, yeah. He explained to Tori that he thought the best way to keep the police away from all this would be to make it look like they had all just got up, moved away together. He asked her, or he told her that he needed all of Scott's clothes, the gun that he had sold to Scott, because remember he sold Scott a gun early on. And he also wanted the receipt for Scott's truck, which they had driven to San Diego that day. He also wanted the receipt for the gun as well that he had given to Scott sure. when he sold him the gun. Tori gave over everything that Leonard asked for, <gasps> but couldn't find the receipts, which really pissed Leonard off. But 
he calmed himself down and just said, you know what, if you find them, mail them to me. Lori was going through a pretty bitter custody battle at the time, and she was worried that if she reported anything she had just heard to the police, it would affect whether or not she got custody of her child. I don't I mean, agree with that yeah. reasoning. I get that you want to make sure you can get your kids, and I don't know Tori's life. However, that's that's a lot. A if far somebody, stretch. if someone I barely knew came to my house and said, "Your boyfriend, his best friend, his best friend's wife, and their baby." had been murdered and I burned their bodies to get rid of the evidence and make it so the police don't come around. I don't know who did it. I just found them that way, but I burned their bodies. I'm going to need all your boyfriend's stuff. I'm <laughs> probably going to call the police. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be like, you stay there while I get his stuff together. But actually I'm calling the police. Well, I mean, she was probably scared for her safety at the time, but call the police at least at some when point. When he leaves, give him all the stuff and then call the police yeah. after. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's baffling to me. In May, the landlord went to the Bond's house when they didn't pay their rent that month because, of course, they are dead. Yeah. Of course, they found it abandoned, but Leonard was already on top of this. He had called the landlord in advance saying that he thought that the Bonds had moved out. And he told the land the landlord that Lonnie Bond and Brenda had probably skipped town, but they had gifted him their car. Yeah. So of how course. the fuck did they leave town, Leonard? Get it together, you dumb fucking asshole. But not only that, but you had just called repeatedly to harass the landlord about these guys, and yet they're gonna gift you their car. I don't. Get yeah, it. makes sense. So at this point, we have heard of Donald Lake, Charles Gunner, Maurice Rock, Cheryl Okoro, Randy Jacobson. Harvey Dubs, his wife Deborah, and their sh- his son Sean, Paul Cosner, Clifford Pertinow, Jeffrey Gerald, Michael Carroll, Kathleen Allen, Lonnie Bond, Brenda O'Connor, and Lonnie Bond Jr. That's, to do the math, two babies, oh. four women, and ten men. Jesus Christ. They still don't know exactly how many other victims that these two may have had. They all... And not only that, but all of these people have been in contact with Leonard Lake and Charles Ng at some point. Wow. Yet no one's putting together. No one has the real names. Yeah, it's like different names. So they don't know they're the same person. Now, thankfully, these two dumbasses were about, and all of their dumbassery was about to catch up with them. And within a month's time, Charlie Ng would make the biggest mistake of his life. When he entered the San, the South San Francisco location of South City Lumber with the intention of stealing a table vice. Wow. Fuck you, Charlie. And that's where we're going to end it today. (gasps) Erica. In the next part of the series, we are going to talk more about how these assholes were caught, what the police discovered while searching the bunker of death, and the deal with the devil that they made with Leonard's ex-wife, who you've probably forgotten about at this point, Cricket Cricket. Velaz, because she had more to do with this than a lot of people (gasps) thought. Fucking Cricket. There's also a cross-country search for a killer, because mm. Charles Zhang, he's not facing the law right away. He goes on the run. He said, no, ma'am. Now, hopefully the next episode will be the conclusion for this case, but I'm a little bit crazy, so who knows? Because <laughs> <laughs> Erica's got the deets. Yeah, Erica's got the deets. Dre's got the beats. Now, you might have to wait a little bit longer for our next episode. I know you had to wait longer for this one, too. My schedule's kind of crazy, but I have such a special episode coming out next week. It's going to be a bonus. <gasps> yeah. Rachel may or may not be there for that. I'm going to try my hardest. But it's going to be really awesome. You have to tune in. You have to listen. 
You guys are going to love it. It's a, such a surprise. Oh, I was so, going to say, are you going to give us any details? I'm not going to tell you guys a damn thing, but we are bouncing overseas virtually, and it's going to be awesome. Ah, can't wait. So hang in there for that. And again, sorry that this episode was late. We love you all for your patience. Yes, thank you for waiting. And if you ever do miss us when we're late on putting out an episode, you can always find us, I don't know, on Instagram. Yeah, totally. Where? Story Crime Pod. And if you want to reach out, you can do that at storycrimepod at gmail.com. Yeah. Or slide into our DMs. We love it. Slide into our DMs. Or if you want to, just hop on Apple Podcasts and give us a review and a rating. That would be great. We love you all so much. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye. Bye.